1 Corinthians 16. Starting in verse 19, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus Amen. So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We just read it. And uh, Lord willing, this will be the last week of our um, study through uh, 1 Corinthians. And, um, you know, Paul closing out the letter, there's been just incredible things that God has shown us through a conclusion, through a farewell uh, to these Corinthians. You know, the way uh, we close out letters says a bit about who we are. Um, you know, you might end a letter, peace, love, and hair grease, or, you know, something like that. Probably not. I, I've never done that. No, I, I have. Or you might end your letter later, Hosen. Um, that also is one. Or <laughs> chow mein. That, okay. Anyways, don't, don't close out your email, emails that way. But we, you know, Paul himself had ways that he would close out his letters. He had ways that he would uh, just encourage and exhort and uh, correct and he's going to do that today. We're going to see that in his letter. Now, two weeks ago, we studied the household of Stephanus, that they were a home that was given over to the ministry of the saints. You remember the King James version of that translation, how it says they were addicted to the ministry of the saints. They were, they were a group of people, they were a family, Stephanus' home, who were noteworthy for their conversion. They were the first group to believe in the region of Achaia, which is kind of, we have a little bit of a map here on our graphic for this book, and kind of this region around Corinth and over across the sea uh, is this region of Achaia, and the first people to believe were this Stephanus' household, Uh, and they were not only people who had been known by their conversion, but they were people who were known by their devotion to the Lord. Uh, because they had willingly volunteered and addicted themselves to be poured out on the sacrifice and service of the faith of the saints, uh, they were told, uh, Paul told the Corinthians that, that they needed to submit to this household and to anybody else who was serving the Lord in such a manner. There needed to be a, a deference and a preference towards individual that were serving in such a way. Uh, This family of Stephanus' household had visited Paul in Ephesus, and Paul says they supplied to me refreshment. They supplied refreshment that the Corinthian church was not able to supply. And that when they brought this letter back from Paul, uh, that the Corinthians would be refreshed as well. Now here in our text today in verse 19, we're going to take uh, another household, another family called Aquila and Priscilla, and we're going to examine this famous couple from verse 19. And we're going to, if you'll allow me, we're going to detour a little bit and go through some other scriptures to see how this household was an incredible ministry team, much like the household of Stephanus. This is a husband and wife team that would be diligent to work for the Lord, diligent to labor, diligent to instruct other people in truth, 
to lay down their lives for their brothers and for the gospel's sake. This was a husband and wife team, a family. It was very close to the heart of Paul, close in friendship with the apostle, this married couple, Aquila and Priscilla. Now, we can learn something about Paul from this couple, and it, 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 these scriptures will show us that Paul was actually a friend maker as much as he was a soul winner. He didn't try to live an isolated life as many uh, people from the uh, monastic life choice. You know, they kind of go off and live out till the Lord comes in the mountains by themselves. That's not how Paul did it. Paul had friends in the Lord, and he appreciated these friends. They were, they were friends that were big helps to him personally. Uh, and as you read the story of missionaries and Christian biographies, something that I've been doing more and more lately, uh, reading of missionaries, uh, reading currently John Patton's uh, missionary biography, autobiography, actually. And uh, as I read those, I'll post them on Facebook so that you guys can kind of go along with me. Uh, they're wonderful reads, but something that you see in these stories is that they were, they were men and women who made friends, men and women of friendships. And, uh, and in this case, how wonderful it is to see a husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla, serve the Lord together in sync, or if you're from my generation, in sync. You know, no, that's, nobody here is from, nobody gets that. Okay. Serving in ministry, all out given to the ministry with reckless abandon. And we see that this isn't just an isolated couple, that this is actually standard for the, Christian, the Christianity of all ages. That this is not just radical Christianity, it's normal Christianity to be a husband, wife, family unit that serves the Lord together. So we have this example from Aquila and Priscilla, and let's look in verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you. And can I just pause for a second, getting off Aquila and Priscilla for one second. How awesome that there's a, not just like a church, there are churches in Asia, just a matter of decades after Jesus was walking on the earth, who are greeting churches. How wonderful to have these love relationships among various congregations. And how wonderful that tonight we're gonna be getting together with a couple different congregations from this city and we're setting aside our, our differences that are non-essentials and we're coming together under the banner of Jesus Christ, the son of God who's resurrected from the dead. And we're gonna worship him tonight in spirit and in truth. We encourage you to, to make the cost tonight of your whatever Sunday evenings normally look like and come worship together with us and bring glory to the Lord as a community in Prineville. Uh, but this, this, these churches in Asia, you know, in Acts 18, we have the story of, Cor of Corinth and how they came to know the Lord, this, this city. Uh, but then we have Acts chapter 19, where Paul goes on into the region of Asia and Asia Minor, and the whole world is turned upside down by the gospel. Uh, all Asia will eventually hear, hear the gospel. And the churches of Asia would greet the Corinthians. And we know in Revelation who seven of those churches are. Chapters two and three of Revelation, these are the churches that Jesus writes some encouraging words to, some corrective words. And he gives an idea of uh, the plan of the end. But these churches would greet uh, the Corinthians. Then we have this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, they greet you heartily in the Lord. I like that hearty greeting. It reminds me of like 
some kind of canned stew or something, you know, hearty. Yeah, you know, nope. Okay. Hearty greetings that, that this, this couple would give these deep and earnest greetings to a whole church in Corinth, the, the church, the place where they perhaps came to know Christ, where they for sure came to know the Apostle Paul, and they watched that church be birthed, and they say, man, we greet you heartily in the Lord. And, that, and then that's at least a two-handed handshake. That's at least a, uh, hey, you know, maybe even a hug, dare I say. Perhaps later on in the chapter, a, a holy kiss. I don't know, right? Paul says to do it. But Aquila and Priscilla are like, hey, what's up? We love you. We're praying for you. We thank our God upon every remembrance of you. And let's just go back there in history to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, where we see Paul departing from Athens where, you know, he preached on Mars Hill, an incredible message, wasn't exactly received by them, was received by some, but he went south to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy and his wife Priscilla, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So we have Aquila, who is originally from Pontius, which is the the region of the shores of the Black Sea. Um, perhaps he met his wife there, we don't really know, or maybe he met uh, Priscilla in Rome, but uh, he found himself in Rome with his wife until 49 AD when Claudius exiled the Jews out of Rome in an act of anti-Semitism and some conflict uh, that the Jews were bringing. He expelled the Jews from Rome he had a hatred for the Jews that spread to them, uh, spread them throughout the whole world. And we end up seeing that God used what Claudius wanted to use for evil for the furtherance of his purposes. God always does that. In Genesis, Joseph tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God has used for good. That's how the Lord works. In Acts chapter 8, you see you know, Paul breathing murderous threats uh, against the church. And, uh, and they are spread out of Jerusalem. You see Herod threatening the church, and they're spread out of Jerusalem. And that's like kicking a bonfire. That doesn't put out the fire. That spreads the fire. And as we studied at our workshop a couple weeks ago, that the blood of the martyrs is seed for the gospel. As we are persecuted and killed, the Lord uses this, this uh, persecution to spread the gospel. Now, Kevin and I were talking on the phone yesterday because we're reading through some of these books on world missions and evangelism and persecution. And we often pray for God to take away our persecution and keep us safe when really biblically and experientially, it's persecution that refines the church and it's persecution that advances the gospel. And so we shouldn't pray like the early church in Acts chapter four. We don't pray that the Lord would remove our persecution, but that he would give us stronger backs to take the load of the persecution. You know what? Persecution would do the American church a little bit of good, a little bit of the refiner's fire upon us. So hard to pray for persecution, but, but um, man, we certainly, the more we talk about Jesus and the more we are outspoken about who he is, the more we're gonna have that. So what's that tell you about our level about speaking out about Jesus? Is Poco? Is Pequeño? <laughs> is Mucho? I don't know why I'm, I just, you know, got to mix it up in my languages around here. Now, 
the historian Centorius, a non-believer, writes that Jews were expelled from Rome because of riots that developed over a man named Christus. Some scholars speculate that by this time the gospel had gotten to Rome and the preaching of Jesus had incited the riots resulting in the expulsion of the Jews. In the midst of it all, there's something going on that marks this couple so that they would always be on the move. Now, perhaps it wasn't their original intent as they got booted out of Rome to be on the move for Jesus. But from that point on, as they came to Corinth and met Paul, they would be a couple who never had roots go down too deep. They were always mobile for the Lord. It's a wonderful part of the the family story of Aquila and Priscilla. Now, the story there in Acts chapter 18 of their meeting of Paul, it says, so because Paul was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation, they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Now we don't know if, you know, Paul met them and preached the gospel to them, or if they were already believers uh, that were, you know, working on their tents and here comes this Jewish evangelist up to them and like they strike up a friendship and they happen to have a mutual vocation. And so that friendship starts. We don't know, but as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, the Christian friendship now first formed continued warm and unbroken and the highest testimony is once and again born to them by the, by the apostle. Don't you long for friendships like that? Praise God, we have friendships like that in this body, in this local body, even in this community body that we have friends at other churches that we would get together and worship each other in warm fellowship and friendship, unbroken. If you don't have that, maybe you've been going to this church for a little time, come talk to me. I wanna get you plugged in to core groups and home groups and time spent with people so that we can be a family and a friend unit as we see in the New Testament. Uh, In Acts chapter 18, later on in verse 18, Paul remained there in Corinth and then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. So he, when he left Corinth a year and a half later, after training up a group of disciples, this group of Aquila and Priscilla went with him on his journey. We see that their hospitality of inviting him into their home was matched by their spiritual maturity by Acts 18, 24, when it says, now a certain Jew named Apollos, this is a new character we're gonna look at today just quickly. Apollo, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogues. So we've got this new character, Apollos, and when he is preaching or when he's speaking, Aquila and Priscilla hear him. The scripture tells us they take him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. And Acts 18, 27 says, and when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive him And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So Apollos, first of all, he's an Alexandrian or he's an Egyptian Jew. That means he was well-learned. The Egyptian culture was one that was very strong in education. They had the greatest library of the then known world of almost 700,000 
volumes. Um, he has a name of a Greek god that reveals his family, though Jewish, had become strongly influenced in Greek culture. Uh, he was an eloquent man. Most Ale- Alexandrians were well-educated, but this guy was skilled in speech. He was a gifted and effective orator. It reminds me of an early church father named John Chrysostom, whose nickname Chrysostom means golden tongue preacher. And when Chrysostom would preach, everyone would just start applauding, and he would have to say, stop applauding, stop applauding, you know? And he ended up preaching a whole message on don't applaud while I'm preaching, and people would applaud at his message on don't applaud. They called him the golden tongue preacher. That's very similar to how Apollos was. Eloquent, knew how to capture the attention of his audience. He was mighty in the scriptures, didn't rely upon his talents or his giftings, but upon the word of God. Matthew Henry, the 15th century Puritan preacher, says he understood the sense and the meaning of the scriptures. He knew how to make use of them and how to apply them, how to reason out of the scriptures and how to reason strongly. The text says that he was well instructed in the way of the Lord. That leads us to think he was indeed a Christian. And he was instructed probably by some of the disciples of John the Baptist concerning maybe Jesus' coming, but it didn't seem he had much more knowledge, the new light of who Jesus is and what he had accomplished and what had happened at the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Even though he was fervent in spirit, which means he was on fire, he was a man who was ablaze. That word fervent means it speaks of the uh, boiling of liquids or the melting of solids and, and the glowing red of like solid metals, which I love as a welder, you know, you'd make that metal just drip and, and form into something else. It's incredible to see. And we see that in a sense, Apollos was on fire. Although his fervency may have been a slightly just, it wasn't complete. And I long that, that we would be on fire, that we would be fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord, as Paul tells the Romans. We are fervent in spirit, we're on fire, and we're also faithfully serving. And so as, as uh, he taught accurately the ways of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John, which is a water baptism, it is a baptism of repentance, it's a wonderful baptism, it's commanded by the Lord for every Christian to obey, it's such as filling, as Jesus says, to fitting to fulfill all righteousness, we're not saved by baptism, but we're saved for good works. And baptism is the first thing we do to publicly show the world that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old man is dead and the new man is alive, resurrected in new life, just as Jesus uh, is the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, that water baptism is a wonderful baptism, but it's not the only baptism. John the Baptist and Jesus and Joel, they spoke of another baptism, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, where the, the Holy Spirit would come upon and saturate a Christian's life. Now, there's a little debate on whether that happens, you know, at the moment of salvation or in subsequent events. But as you look at the language, it's at least a continual, powerful filling of the Holy Spirit. And as Alistair Begg says, who probably doesn't line up exactly with where I'm at, I agree with him when he says, whatever it is, I want it. And whenever it happens, I need it. We need this second baptism And so if you sense that your life is just dry and lacking and you know the baptism of John, but I would just encourage you to say, Lord, maybe I've been baptized with the Holy Spirit before, but it doesn't seem like I don't see it. Pour out your spirit on me, overflowing, flowing, that I could have the power 
to be a witness in Prineville and in Crook County and in Ben Redmond, Deschutes County, in Mitchell, and to the outermost parts of the world, even Nepal, baptize me afresh, Lord. Perhaps that is something that Aquila and Priscilla took him aside to teach him. Though he was a bold man, he was also a humble man, humble man and a teachable man. And you know, I'm a young guy, but I've been in ministry for quite a few years and I've seen guys that know a lot. They've got a lot of head knowledge and they've got a lot of power behind them, but they're not teachable men. And the Lord has had to work that in myself as well, to walk in humility and to walk in being teachable. And and Apollos was that. He was willing to listen to a tent maker and his wife explain the word of God more accurately. William McDonald says it's to the credit of this eloquent preacher that he was willing to be taught by a tent maker and his wife. They probably took him aside and discussed with him that Jesus is the fulfillment of those scriptures that he knew so well. They probably explained the doctrinal and experiential elements of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and a better understanding of the regeneration, indwelling, and baptism of the Holy Spirit. Whatever it was that they taught him, he went from there up into Ephesus, a powerhouse of the gospel, refuted with the Jews publicly and openly, and reasoned with them that Jesus was the Christ. And it seems that that part was missing from his previous messages. Perhaps they showed him more accurately. Like, you know, John the Baptist was preaching. There's one coming after me who's mightier than I, whose sandal straps I'm not willing to unloose. And Apollos is like, booyah, I gotta go tell people that. And so he's over there telling people that. And then Aquila and Priscilla are like, bro, you're preaching the gospel, but guess who the fulfillment of it is? He came and he lived and he died. And he rose again, and he sent the helper, the comforter, the parakletos to come alongside and to empower you to be a witness to all the nations. And then he went boldly and preached Jesus. We see that uh, he sent, they sent with him letters of recommendation. Now, I want you to notice something here about Aquila and Priscilla and their life. That after being with Paul for about a year and a half, they are now able to tell others about Jesus. Something we didn't read in our Acts 18 text was that they had gone with Paul, but then Paul left them in the region of Ephesus. A year and a half after probably being saved, a year and a half after being disciples, they were well equipped enough to begin doing the work of the ministry to be left behind and trusted with principles of the faith, with the good news of the gospel. And they preached it. After people have been around you, are they mighty in the Lord? Are they going deeper in Christ? Are they ministering to others? After you've been discipled for a year and a half or two years, will you be ready to teach others the way of the Lord? And if I can, I'm gonna do a little bit of shameless plugging right now for next year's Equip School of Ministry. How incredible. Maybe we don't realize as a church how, how wonderful it is we can give glory to God that our church has just had its first year of students go through the Equip School of Ministry so that they can be sent out and effectively minister the gospel, not only in fervency, but in truth. 
They know doctrine, they know theology, they know the word of God. They know the Old Testament. That's happened in our church, do you know that? It's awesome, praise God. So the Lord is, is moving that we would have our Wednesday nights now, corporate gatherings, be this hybrid of pulse and Bible study, all right? That's gonna be starting the first Wednesday night in July. But in the fall, Thursday nights will now be the next season of Equip School of Ministry. And this time it is open to the whole body to be a part of, but it's gonna be a school. It's gonna be a commitment. It's gonna be something that, it's like school. You gotta be there. You gotta finish strong. You're gonna be equipped. And it doesn't just end with you getting a whole bunch of head knowledge and puffing up. It's gonna be you being placed into key ministry places, being sent out perhaps uh, into the mission field or into church planning, whatever the Holy Spirit would direct but we're gonna be doing that in the fall again. And so I encourage you, um, single people as well or whoever, but especially Aquila and Priscilla who spent a year and a half in Paul's equip school of Corinth, that you would come with your wives and that you would come with your husbands and you would be faithful to be taught the word so that you could go out and minister it. That you would maybe make that your date night of the week, that Thursday night, me and my wife, you know, we have a babysitter and we go faithfully. We're students at the school of ministry. We're being equipped for the work of the ministry. And so be praying about that in a little bit's time. We'll have sign-up sheets about that. But as we're looking at Aquila and Priscilla and their discipleship and how they were sent out and entrusted with missions, you husbands and wives, pray about coming and being a part of this. Doesn't matter if you're young married, if you've got young kids, if you're you know seasoned veterans, uh, you know, come and be a part of our uh, Thursday night equip school of ministry this fall. But how wonderful, how beautiful, how precious to see a husband and wife team serving the Lord together, coupled together in their efforts. You know, I am so blessed. I remember when I first started dating Lindsay, it was like when we first started like dating, and it was like, okay, this is actually dating. We're not just friends, you know. I just remember driving away like, I'm gonna marry that girl. And I was so determined and purposed, like, it was gonna happen and it did happen, but just God's grace and his sovereignty, that could have just totally been botched and it could have been the you know, person that wouldn't have complimented me in ministry. And, and God has brought alongside me a help me and a, and a woman who is zealously a Priscilla, someone who is serving the Lord. And how wonderful to see that, not only in, in me and my wife, but in husbands and wives throughout our church uh, it's a history of my discipleship that husbands and wives would be poured into me. Here in our church, in the children's ministry, we have husbands and wives that are teaching children together as a team. We have a need for marriage ministry in this church that husbands and wives would be counseling and, and equipping couples to be married if they're engaged. In the custodial ministry, we have husbands and wives that come down and their Saturday afternoon is you know, scrubbing stains down here and vacuuming the church. In the worship ministry, we, we have Scott and Tammy, husbands and wives that, that are worshiping the Lord together. And I love what one man said, the work of the gospel is sustained by Priscilla's and Aquila's. I would not be here today if it weren't for the husband and wife teams the Mark and Shauna Troncalis, the Ken and Audrey Odegaards, the Rob and Susie Verdines, these people that have taken me under their wing and have discipled me and opened up their home to me. 
What a blessing that we have that in our church. We have the Ron and Gales and the Frank and Loretta's and the Aaron's and Stephanie's and the John's and Nicky's and Dean's and Cheryl's and Ken and Paula Curvin's and Dustin and Jacqueline newly walking with the Lord over the last year, but they're serving in the children's ministry together. Husbands and wives pouring themselves out that that is what they do for entertainment. That is what they do for fulfillment. They serve Jesus They serve the sheep, opening up their homes and hearts and being a great encouragement. We have that precedent set in Aquila and Priscilla. And we saw that that fruit remained for years and years and years. Priscilla and Aquila did not remain in Ephesus where they taught Apollos, but eventually they would find their way back to Rome. The persecution would end and they found themselves there in Rome again and in the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Romans Romans 16 verse 3 it says greet Priscilla and Aquila my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their own necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks but also all the churches of the Gentiles it's kind of neat since we're starting to get an understanding of who Aquila and Priscilla are that when Paul writes to them later on, when they're back home in Rome, that he says, they are my fellow workers. And I think of the husband and wife teams. And, and if you're single here, don't let that be a downer to you. We, we push singles ministry all the time and individual ministry, that's big, always pushed here. But today, just looking at a married couple that are just serving the Lord as my fellow workers, my fellow workers. I love when I call Nikki to come down here and to print stuff for equip and to get stuff set up. And I come down here and John is down here with her and Malachi is down here with her and they're serving the Lord together. Husbands and wives, it is special. And not only are they fellow workers, but look what they did in verse four of Romans 16, who risked their own necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. We don't really know when it was or what happened that they risked their lives for Paul, but we're glad they did it, right? We're right there that are thankful with these people. We're so glad that they did it. Perhaps it was when there was some upheaval uh, upheaval in Corinth or the riot in Acts chapter 19 that happened in Ephesus where the whole city was in an uproar. Perhaps it was there that they risked their necks. Now, in Romans 16, it says that there was a church in their house. And in our text today, in 1 Corinthians 16, it says, the church in their house greet you. In Romans 16, the church in their house was to be greeted, and here they do the greeting to the Corinthians. It's a frequent thing for churches to begin in homes. That's the testimony of Calvary Chapel Corvallis, meaning it, a uh, small house behind Corvallis High School. I remember it. It's the testimony of Calvary Chapel Ben. It's the testimony of our church. It's the testimony of many church plants that they began in homes. One man said, it was Alistair Begg, the impact of your home for the gospel is unquantifiable. Can I say that again? Just so it sinks in. I know how it is. You guys start zoning out and looking at that cross behind and you're like, I wonder how bright that light gets on that cross. Don't do that. Listen up. The impact of your home for the gospel is un. 
quantifiable. Is your home being used for the church? When we read Colossians 4.15, there was a man named Nymphus, and he had a church in his house. Philemon had a church in his house. Now perhaps this spoke of a congregation of Christians that used the home as a meeting place, a house that was blessed like Obed-Edom's house in the Old Testament as they housed the ark. The early church often met in houses because they had few meeting places. And up until the third century, that was, that was the, the structure where a lot of worship times took place. House to house, as Acts chapter two tells us. A commentator named Morris says that the moderate, moderately well-to-do household had a common room that could hold about 30 people comfortably. And so perhaps it was like this house church taking place there. Others, like John Calvin and Matthew Henry, said that uh, perhaps this house church was no more than a religious, pious, well-governed family that kept up the worship of God. And then he writes this, religion in the power of it reigning in a family will turn a house into a church. Are you walking with Jesus as a family, as Stephanus's household did, as Aquila and Priscilla? Then your family is a church. We know this from our church series that the church isn't the structure, it's not the building, it's the people inside of it. I like what John Calvin said, a magnificent eulogy inasmuch as the name of the church is applied to a single family. It's a great eulogy to their memory that they had a church in their home and perhaps their home was the church. Now I wanna note something here. Sometimes the wife Priscilla is mentioned before Aquila. Six times in the New Testament, Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned. And four of those times, that's like two thirds, I don't know. <laughs> My wife's an accountant, I pray a lot. Okay, <laughs> so two thirds of those times, Priscilla, the female, the wife, is mentioned first. This has led some to believe that Priscilla was the more obviously spiritually gifted as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown write in their commentary and what appears to be the true reading of this verse, Priscilla is put before Aquila. She being probably the more intelligent and devoted of the two. Matthew Henry writes, the good wife of the family was so very eminent and forward in religion, so eminent that she is often named first a virtuous woman that looks well to the ways of her household may do much towards the advancement of religion in a family. How about you moms? How about you wives? Are you Priscilla's? Are you zealously and earnestly following after the Lord, teaching your children? If the husband is away, that doesn't mean the devotion life is stopped in the home. You are teaching and admonishing your children, bringing them up into the truths of the Lord. There are times when the wife does seem to be more visibly gifted. The word seems to show that and experience seems to show that. 
perhaps this wife would have the better memory, have the time to be involved throughout the day. Perhaps it's these wives that show creativity and fervor for the Lord. That's wonderful. But that does not negate the order of leadership that God has created within the genders. It's just gift distribution. The Holy Spirit distributes the gifts as he wills. Now, this is also not to say that the husband can just sit in the back seat and merely go along for the ride, as many husbands do in this church. Just because Priscilla was fervently on fire and her name is mentioned two-thirds of the time more, doesn't give the precedent for husbands to be slackers and let their wives lead the home spiritually. The fact is, just because your wife seems more visibly gifted or has had more time to be plugged in, even Aquila was not hindered in being united in ministry with his wife. They both were going 100% all out for Jesus. How great that more than once in scripture, Aquila and Priscilla's home group is mentioned. Imagine in the, in the Chronicles of History, the Stauffer home group. You know the Stauffers? Right there. They have a home group in their home and they cook very well at it. So you might wanna go to that one. They might be full, I don't know. But then in the Chronicles of History, the Stauffers, Troy and Becky, and their family, Ian and Chloe, that these four people advanced the gospel through their home church, through their house church. Now, another time in scripture, 2 Timothy 4.19, this is Paul's last letter before he's beheaded. And he says, greet Prisca and Aquila. It's kind of a shortened form for Priscilla. Greet Prisca and Aquila. He sends greetings to the couple by way of Timothy and Ephesus, which tells us that they had moved back again from Rome to Ephesus. How many couples today would move as often as Priscilla and Aquila did just to be able to serve the Lord better? And whenever they moved, they had to pick up their tent making business. They would lose their clients and they would go across the sea. People with this kind of dedication and sacrifice are not easy to find, but they are great assets to the local church. And I believe that as the Holy Spirit is doing a move in our church of sending us out to the unreached people groups and to the nations, that God is going to raise up families to be sent out. That's what we're praying for. And you know what? We wanna send our best. We wanna send our best to be missionaries and our best to be church planters to have churches in their homes. Those of you that are signed up for missions trips, I just want you to start praying that, that your life would be a blank check to the Lord because many people I know go on their first missions journey and they're called to mission work. They can't get Brazil out of their mind. They must go back. They must give everything they have to go and preach the gospel along the Amazon. When we go to Nepal and we go up into these Himalayan mountains up into unreached people groups and there are people who've never ever heard the name of the Lord Jesus. They don't even have a word for love and they're standing there with infected wounds because they don't even know how to clean a wound and you simply 
pour out your love to them and your high school first aid training, like wash it off and put a Band-Aid on it, you know? Don't be surprised if your heart stays in Nepal. And we want it to. We want it to. We want to send our best. You guys ready to conclude this chapter or what? Verse 20 of our 1 Corinthians 16. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The Corinthians that had differences that were causing division and faction, and Paul is telling them to greet one another with mutual affection and to greet in the common way of your day. Everyone was kissing as a greeting, but because they were holy, that made it a holy kiss, a holy handshake, a holy embrace, high five, whatever. But greet one another and be affectionate to one another. There are to be obvious signs and seals among the family of God that when people come in here who don't know Jesus, they see us hugging each other and like, hugging, I love you, man. The occasional holy kiss, it's cool, biblical. Guys with guys, girls with girls, let's keep it holy, right? But they're greeting another, one another and the guy that comes in that's a non-Christian says, truly God is in this place. I know these are Christians by the love that they have for one another. And as Louis Armstrong says, and as I think to myself, what a wonderful world song. He says, I see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The issue wasn't kissing or high fives or handshakes. It was loving. It was caring. It was telling one another, we're in this together and I'm here for you. Verse 21, this salutation with my own hand, Paul's. Paul would often dictate his letters to a scribe, probably Sosthenes, as is shown in the beginning of this book. And then he would finish off the conclusion by himself with poor handwriting at that. In Galatians chapter six, he says, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. <laughs> I have a second grader in my house, you know, and it's so fun. Like he's writing awesome things. And now my preschooler's like, you know, and Paul had poor vision. And so he's probably like, I'm just trying to get it on there. He would write with his own hand. He tells the Thessalonians, this salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. One man I was listening to said, man, if I was in that church and it had Paul's like handwriting on it, I'd be like, I gotta see that. What's his handwriting like? And, and, and what does it say? Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Oh Lord, come. The word accursed is a strongest form of judgment and separation. It's the Greek word anathema. And then we have this phrase, oh Lord, come, which is from Aramaic, transferred over, and it's maranatha. So we have, let him be anathema, maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Paul said in Romans 9 that he was willing to be anathema, to be cursed and be separated from God from all eternity if his family, the Jews, could be saved. But I don't believe that Paul is referring to non-Christians and those who are seeking and the Gnostics who don't yet 
know Jesus. You don't know Jesus, curse you. But then he's saying to the Corinthians, anybody who claims they know Jesus, but don't love Jesus from their heart, let them be accursed. If you're a hypocrite, you have no place here. Let them be cursed, let them be cut off. We don't want you. He says that to the Galatians, he says, if anyone comes and preaches another gospel, even if it's an angel from heaven that says and comes in glory and preaches something that is contradictory to the epistles of Paul, you let them be accursed and cut off. Likewise, if anyone comes here and says, I love Jesus, I'm a part of things, but their life does not evidence that, curse you. Now, the opposite is true of those who love Jesus. And he says later on, uh, oh, where's it at? Right, he says, to those who love Jesus, grace and peace and mercy. A heavy curse on those who do not love Jesus. And I would ask you today, do you love the Lord Jesus? I know it's been a long sermon and we started out so well with song and clapping. And guys, would you focus? This is, this is important right now as we close. Do you love Jesus? I'm not asking, do you have perfect church attendance? I'm not asking, have you cleansed the outside of the cup, but the inside is dirty and foul and rotten? Do you love the Lord Jesus? Well, how do I know? How do I know if I love Jesus? Poole says, love is an affection of the heart, but discernible by overt acts. How many abusive husbands beat their wives and then tell her, I love you? Obviously, no love there. How many people claim to love the Lord Jesus Christ and spit upon him and disobey him and walk in absolute debauchery and immorality with no sorrow for their sin? Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Those who believe, obey. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, those who love, obey. Luke 6, 46 says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do the things that I say? I'm not your Lord, so quit calling me Lord. There's a parable, and I always tell my son this, not because I'm talking about him, but I'm teaching him. And I tell him, son, Jesus says that there were two servants, and the master said, come, I want you to go out and do this chore on the vineyard, and I want it done now. And the servant says, no, I'm not gonna do that, and leaves, but later on goes, ah, was my master telling me that, I, I'm gonna do that. And another servant came, and the master says, go out and do this chore, and the servant says, okay, I'm totally gonna do that, and then leaves and doesn't do it. And Jesus says, who was the obedient servant? It was the one who obeyed. You guys, there is, praise God, there are people who come into the church who say that they love the Lord Jesus. There is no fruit of obedience in their life. And there is anathema for them. If I can, in closing, close with a quote from Samuel Rutherford, also a 15th century preacher, he described how to grow in your love for Jesus. So if you're here today, and I pray that if you're here and you don't love Jesus, I pray the Holy Spirit is just convicting you that he's showing you his love for you 
so that you'll want to love him back because his love for you is so strong and it's so deep. And if you don't have a love for Jesus, just this is a good word from, a, from an old friend from the 1500s. He says, strive to make prayer and reading and holy conference your delight. And when delight cometh in, you shall little by little find the sweetness of Christ till at length your soul be over head and ears in Christ's sweetness. Then you shall be taken up to the top of the mountain with the Lord to know the delights of spiritual love and the glory and excellency of a seen, revealed, felt, and embraced Christ. And then you shall not be able to loose yourself off from Christ and to bind your soul to old lovers. Then and never until then are all the paces, motions, and wheels of your soul in a right tune and spiritual temper. But if this world and the lusts thereof be your delight, I know not what Christ can make of you. You cannot be metal for a vessel of glory and mercy. My desire is that the Lord would give me broader and deeper thoughts to feed myself with wondering at his love. I would, I could weigh it, but I have no balance for it. When I have worn my tongue to the stump in praising Christ, I have done nothing to him. What remains then, but that my debt to the love of Christ lie unpaid for all eternity. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul started the letter with grace. He started the letter with Jesus. He closes the letter with grace and he closes the letter with Jesus. The original language doesn't say amen. It closes, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus.